I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for Better Conversations. Sometimes they don't even see the ethical problem because it's under the, these layers. And if they see it, they think, oh, my God, an ethical problem, what should I do? And they do something very quickly without thinking just to make the problem go away. And we know that's usually not the smartest thing to do. Requires a considered approach. Right. And... So, so I don't go into a company and tell them this is this how you have to do it. It's more like I help them to understand what are our risk areas, what are our people struggling with on a day-to-day basis. And, and that's already something that's not so easy to do because if I ask you, well, tell me about the ethical problems in your daily work life, any idea what to say? While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable, or warming and memorable. My guest today is Bettina Palazzo. She's an expert in business ethics and advises companies and nonprofits on how to look after the leadership and cultural dimension of compliance. She is a big proponent of speak up cultures and ethical leadership. So she lives in Switzerland. She also teaches ethics in business at various Swiss universities. And from what I know about her, she's always bridging that gap between theory and practice. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and hearing her point of view. Certainly, one of the things I've picked up in conversation with her is her capacity to hold opposing thoughts in conversations. And I will also be asking her about her best and worst conversations. Uh, So do stick around for that. I promise you it will be worth it. Welcome, Bettina. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm I'm delighted because this is uh, we've talked about this before. Ethics is is something that, uh, as a coach, kind of stands really strong. Um, certainly in my practice and and working with my clients. But I'm really fascinated and excited to hear your perspective on conversations. So let's start with what's a good conversation mean to you? What does that feel uh, and look like to you? Yes, I, I really liked your question and I thought about it and uh, this this picture came up in my mind that it should be a little bit like riding a seesaw with somebody where you kind of share the ups and downs and you uh, ideally you would enjoy the time when the other person has the pleasure of being up as much as the, the time when when you are down. So that way you, you have, you get, you create more energy and you learn new things that you didn't think about before. Yeah. So that, that's a good conversation. And of course that leads directly to the bad conversation. That's when, when this kind of flow 
of energy is blocked because the other one wants always to stay up and always talk. So that's a bad conversation. Or if the other, if somebody doesn't want to share anything, like uh, teenagers are notorious for this, you ask something and you get yes, no, or no answer. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say, it's a two-way thing. So it's it's being in a space together where you you can be on the upside of the conversation as well as be, be able to navigate maybe the harder bits of conversations, but also that it's two-sided, right? That there isn't, uh, you're not having to do all the heavy lifting uh, and the other person is, is simply giving you very short answers or yes, no, or even a grunt. So um in terms of something that you said in preparation for our conversation today is that a good conversation requires listening skills. Uh -huh. um, and in reference to, I think, what a lot of people may be experiencing with homeschooling and so on, kids having to listen online, um, but potentially also listen in school, that that actually is is quite a boring experience for teenagers. I just wondered whether you had any other thoughts around that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, well, if you put yourself, I do this frequently, put myself in the, in the role of the learner and you, you realize how much energy it takes to listen well for a longer time. And we also know from, from the science of learning that the maximum attention to, even if it's not very complex stuff, is like 10 minutes. And then you need to make the link to the other person, ideally to something that they have already experienced in their life, because then they don't phase out. It's, it seems to be kind of natural that people phase out after a certain time. There are various theories around this, why this is the way. I think one thing I read is that we can say in a certain mm, speed we can speak, but we can we can we listen much faster. So that's why we have this kind of gap of our our brain is idling. So then, what does your brain do if it has nothing to do? It just drifts off into daydreaming and and in uh, multitasking and starting to write your to do list during a lecture, classically. Or mm -hmm. what teenage? What would teenagers do when yeah, they probably don't write their to do list, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's very true, and certainly. Yeah, our, our brains do are jumping ahead. We're also, if it's familiar sort of information, we tend to, in our minds, certainly finish the sentences or we know what's coming. So we move on. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm talking to my kids. It's you know, they're, they're really struggling with that one sided communication. Um, and that does make it you're being talked at for long periods of time, which is um, which is quite exhausting as well. Yeah. And, and really stopping yourself that you think you know already what they will be saying. I think that's really so important with your kids because that's not very appreciative of them because maybe they would want to say something else. And I, I notice this a lot that you start something and the other person already thinks they know what you want to say, but maybe it's not the case and it's really bad. <laughs> but, but of course, yeah, it, it's a hard habit to break, I think. 
yeah, and and we don't get taught it really, do we? Uh, we don't, other than we have to endure it, maybe in our in our studies, but we don't really get taught um, how to listen and then engage with that information um, in a constructive way. Thinking about your work, I'd love to, you to talk more about the work that you do because it's such a uh, such an important aspect, and and it certainly is a cause for a great deal of stress and anxiety for many who you know are observing maybe some unethical behaviour within their organisation. So tell us a little bit more about what you do. Yeah, so when I started out there well, many, many years ago, it was the whole field was more or less in the beginning, business ethics, and and over the last 20 years, the, the, um, the topic kind of exploded. And um, when I, I still remember, for instance, when I, I went to the States for a research trip on business ethics to meet various people who were like the top professors at the time, in the field and uh, on the plane i met this businessman and i was all i was 27 i was all proud of my trip and i told him about my project and he laughed at me saying oh there's no such thing as business ethics and even if there was it's how would you manage something as um, abstract and intangible as ethics <laughs> and in a way, he was right, because what then happened is when business took it over, they, uh, the way they tried to, to put business ethics in a box was, first of all, of what made sense in their world from a very legalistic point of view. And that's how compliance management developed. And so, so business ethics got first, first they got kidnapped by the lawyers, <laughs> which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work so well, uh, because t lawyers tend to think, yes, if we have a law and we write a policy and we communicate the policy to everybody, we don't have a problem anymore, which of course doesn't really think about the whole culture, behavioral, and leadership dimension of ethics. Yeah. So, and then after compliance, and the, the topic got even bigger, and the uh, corporate social responsibility and sustainability, and ever since we have this, and, and the newest kit on the block is purpose, and it's all. Uh, so, so everybody's trying to to create a different box where you can to, to have yeah a new name for a new box. And for me, the whole thing is the business ethics box. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And, and what I'm doing there is um, well, trying to help compliance to get a grip that it's not only about the policy and some controls, because it just doesn't work that way. That's why we keep having uh, scandals, because the ticking the box approach just doesn't get it because you don't anticipate new problems that way. You only can have tick the boxes on all the issues that on the risk that you already identified. But if something new comes up, like, um, uh, let me think about an example. Ever again, it happens that that companies are kind of surprised when they're hit by an ethical problem. It's because they they, they are often so focused on their world, on their profits, on their sales, that they, they, they just don't see it coming. There's even a term for 
this now, it's called the Nike moment, which refers to back in the beginning of the 90s when Nike got hit by a boycott because it turned out that in their production sites in, in Asia, which were not even their legal entity, uh, there were really bad working conditions. Mm-hmm. And this just keeps happening <laughs> over and over again. In And, and uh, strangely enough, most companies always go through the same cycle. They First, it's denial. Then they kind of grudgingly admit that there is a problem and they start to tackle it from a compliance perspective. And then they see that doesn't really work. And then they advance. So what, what I find interesting or which tickles my curiosity, why can't they? Because they, companies always talk about, yeah, learning from the best and benchmarks and blah, blah, blah. But why, does, why don't they do it in the ethics realm? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I find that interesting. You know, it's almost like ticking the box and having a policy. Yeah, right. Takes away any kind of responsibility to do anything further about it. And um, mm-hmm. that I feel, you know, means that it always, it, for many companies, it stays in that space of, of uh, policy um, and, you know, the legal team or the HR team and not into the realm or the responsibility of leaders or individuals within an organization. Mm. Yeah, that's also why I'm very critical of of this new movement of purpose, because you you can't really take this purpose idea and pop it like a cherry on top of your general profit culture cake. Uh, You need to work it from the inside up and work on your culture first and bring it in all of your systems and all of the hearts and minds of your people. And and that's hard work and it's it's rarely done well. And you can't just do it as a marketing gimmick, but that's something I'm observing at the moment. There are some exceptions, but they're quite rare, like Patagonia is doing... Uh, great stuff there and they're disrupting themselves constantly because they also have a very open culture that fosters dissent which in most companies is a hard thing to find well and i think they're closely tied to things like you know corporate values um, leadership standards and expectations culture you know all of these things certainly in my mind are very closely bound together. And I hear, you know, breaches of ethics in spaces where the technology is interfacing with sales within organizations. So, so many times I've heard the technology people say, I wish sales would stop mis-selling what we have or what we can do. And that's a very small example, but it's a, it, it, you know, there's a gap there, isn't there, between what a client is signing up to and being told they're getting and what they actually end up getting. And that's just a, a practical aspect that has mm-hmm. longer term bearing on the organization's revenue. I mean, that puts revenue at risk, but for the period that the contract's being signed, it can be overlooked. Yeah, so that's a very uh, sharp observation. And, and especially if we think about link the link between technology and sales. So we are uh, looking at two 
well, two factors come to my mind that are uh, toxic for ethical thinking, that is speed and performance pressure. So what we have typically today in technology is that things develop have to be developed very fast. So you do you start a new app and you do it quick and dirty and then later you pick up the pieces and look at the bugs or at the at the long term or social consequences. Mm. And and then this gets powered by sales because sales have all this pressure for performance at getting their sales number. And they're also have never been trained to think longer term, to think long-term relationship with the client. And and then, yeah, then you have uh, ethical failures like, for instance, the, the really bad working conditions for all these food delivery apps that, that nobody really started on purpose and said, oh, let's start this app where we can exploit poor people who drive around, ride their bikes around town and don't have any security and uh, are slaves to the algorithm that sends them all the way around. It's just that repairing the ethics is very costly and difficult. So my, my, um, idea would always be to the ethics by design and so people need to be trained to do this they need to be trained they need to have the space to think about the possible long-term consequences of what they are creating and it needs the critical thinking they need to have the time to do this which often is not is not there so mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's very often not that we have evil people in companies. It's just a, a, this kind of connection of all kinds of forces of the context that pushes people to the dark side. And it's not even and because you have this network effect and it's not one person who started it, but all kinds of uh, the decision making in the company can be very complex. So yes, better conversations of pe if, if people would talk more about these things together, I guess we could avoid many of the tribulations and uh, problems we see in business and ethics today. Well, for sure, knowing how to not avoid those really important conversations. So what's the hardest thing that your clients, when you're talking to them and saying, you know, you, you've probably got an issue going on here, what do they find hard to hear? Well, it depends from the case, but very often they get into something without, with good intention and they, they don't really think about what, how it could be seen from the outside. So for instance, I, I was working with a client last year where the CEO was in the board of a supplier, which of course is not, if, if on the other side you want to avoid conflicts of interest, in the rest of your company is not a very good example of uh, ethical leadership because mm -hmm. then everybody thinks, well, if he, uh, well, and, and of course, conflicts of interest are tricky stuff because in a way we are all in relationship where we exchange 
favors and help each other. So there's this human side to it. And why shouldn't I hire my, um, my niece for this job? Because I think she is superbly qualified for this and help her at the same time. It's also a very cultural thing. And there are certain cultures where it would even be seen unethical if you hire somebody else instead of your niece because family comes first. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's often not so... Um, uh, I think the, the, the thing about ethics and business is often that on the one hand side, people are all more or less experts in ethics because humans are ethical beings. And on the other hand side, the, the circumstances in business can be rather complex or so it is underestimated what kind of effect it has. And it's um, it's understanding the importance of, of, first of all, being transparent, right, about and declaring a conflict of interest, but better overall to avoid even any perception of there being a conflict of interest in that situation from a governance perspective, from an ethical perspective. Yes, and uh, transparency can be also a tricky thing because it's in, in, um, in a conflict with also protecting your intellectual property. So how far does transparency go? It's not an absolute value that you have to be super transparent about everything. You also need to protect your organization like you want to protect your private life. So there's also uh, a value in that. So that, and that defining this for all kinds of situations is not easy. No, it's not. And it's, it's, it is very complex. And I like that you've highlighted, you know, that people are not good people do bad things under certain conditions and circumstances um, and under certain pressures. And we, those are the things that are often hidden and we don't see or we don't understand, um, but they nevertheless have an implication, don't they, on, on the team or the organization. And so how do you, how do you surface that? How do you get an organization to think more ethically? How, what kind of training do you give them? I'd love to hear more about that. Well, the thing is, as you said so nicely, that ethics is often hidden under different layers. It's not. It's, it's usually not that way that a potential client tells you, well, you can have the deal if you give me X amount of dollars. It's often a little more, more subtle and they say something, oh, we, you could give a donation to this foundation. And then right. you don't really, you, you, feel kind of, you kind of feel uneasy, but you don't really know. And then you don't dare to ask your boss and you have the pressure to win the client. So the the most important first step for every organization is that they prepare for this and that they that they normalize talking about ethics that you don't have to be afraid if you have a problem that you ask um, your boss your colleague and your and you know it will be safe and worthwhile you know that you will you will receive help it will you will not harm your career you will you not lose your job or not get the bonus <laughs> and, uh, and and something will happen now that that's that's the key that's why the speak up culture is so important and the, the because people have not learned to talk about ethics in business often the reaction as soon as an as they 
Sometimes they don't even see the ethical problem because it's under the, these layers. And if they see it, they think, oh, my God, an ethical problem. What should I do? And they do something very quickly without thinking just to make the problem go away. And we know that's usually not the smartest thing to do. Mm. Well, it requires a considered approach. Right. And... So, so I don't go into a company and tell them this is this how you have to do it. It's more like I help them to understand what are our risk areas, what are our people struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and that's already something that's not so easy to do because if I ask you, well, tell me about the ethical problems in your daily work life, you even, well, you wouldn't have any idea what to say. So what I'm doing is I use the power of storytelling and in, in uh, my workshops, I use little stories like you come into your boss's office, there is a huge bottle of champagne from a very expensive brand on his desk and you see the card with the logo of one of your, one of your suppliers. What do you do? So you, the suspicion would be that your boss is getting uh, some goodies from the, the supplier to have him sign a contract. That, so do you ask your boss, oh, what, what, what do you do with the champagne bottle? Do you say nothing? Do you, do you discuss this with your colleagues? Do you uh, remember this? So next time when you get invited by a supplier, you have a great justification to do the same. <laughs> and, and these kind of things that, that it works very well with these stories because then i let people choose what they would do and because it's not them nobody has to be afraid that they might mm. be identified as bad people and it's a game and it's fun and and it shows them that it's because often mm, if companies develop a code of conduct, it's very dry and legalistic. And if you say, well, we avoid conflicts of interest, you often don't really know what does it mean. So you need this kind of story to, to bring some flesh to the skeleton. And once you created this face, safe space around the stories where people start to think what would be the best thing to do in the situation, what would be the best thing to do in our context, then they their brain gets all warmed up and they just hardly, very often they can't even stop talking about their own cases. And this is what I then collect. And then after a session like this, I have a very good idea what the trigger points in, a, in an organization are. I love that. I love that. It's helping people, first of all, understand and start to be able to recognize what a breach looks like. And, and it can be something really simple like that, right? Um, and, and yes, there are, you get these looks, don't you? Or you, you get a sense that you shouldn't ask about that champagne bottle. Um, even just glancing at it might, you know, mean that that other person diverts the conversation away or, or whatever. And these are the things that give us clues that this is not a question to ask about. You know, this isn't a topic to talk about or question. So yeah, absolutely. It's that initially helping people actually recognize what it looks like and being able to start to talk about all the complexities that sit within that, right? The feelings the confused feelings 
um, uh, and the sort of dangers, I suppose, that you might feel about even doing anything with that information. Mm, exactly. And uh, feelings are always, as you probably know from your work very well, feelings are always kind of scary in a business context. And also what we can see in my champagne example is, is where here is where it's actually the responsibility of the leader to say, oh, see, I got this champagne bottle from the supplier. This is not a good idea that they did this. I will send it back. And then check he has done, he or she has done um, the right thing as a role model for leadership. Because what, what, and what I find kind of annoying when I read codes of conduct is very often it said, and please, you managers in the company, you are the most important ones to be the role models for the code. And but the, yeah, that sounds kind of obviously, but obvious, but it's not so clear to most people. How are you a role model? Right. It's very, it's too abstract. You need to give them more, more scripts and more prompts how to do this. Well, there are certainly there are naturals, but they are kind of rare, I'm afraid. Well, look, I, I hear you uh, loud and clear on that one. Um, you know, in the work, certainly in the work that I do, just having people understand that as leaders, they are role models, whether they like it or not, and their behavior is being observed. Um, but if you have a leader that isn't really self-aware and, and doesn't know the impact of just them being in the room, even, you know, being able to demonstrate great ethical leadership is another level up, right? Yes, yes. That's a, a, an amazing thing that Leaders tend to forget how much they are under constant observation, and if they, yeah, because their their behavior is always interpreted, and if they don't explain it and justify it, uh, people will will come up with their own stories. I experienced one great story in one of my first ethics projects ever, where there was. The, the director of this department store went to the canteen and the employees thought he wouldn't pay because he got his bill monthly. But what the employees thought was only their boss going to the canteen and not paying cash like they did. And they thought, oh, he's earning so much more than, than we and uh, he doesn't pay. That's not fair. Right. So, th <laughs> so, so this is a great story, um, how, how this works, how people are wired to look out for justice. And if they see that, the, if they feel that they're not being dealt with fairly, they tend to, tr to find all kinds of smart ways to, to balance this out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it, we take too much for granted that it's obvious or it doesn't need explaining, but uh, there's massive value in, in just being crystal clear and over communicating. Um, yes. Right. For sure. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? When we can provide a safe space in conversation, 
the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential, encourage deeper collaborations and foster true connection at work. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Seherm Sirene, helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. So, um, Bettina, who has influenced or shaped your perspective on conversations? Yes, so there's one person who instantly comes to my mind, even I haven't met him so often in my life, and his name is Aurit van Heerden. He used to, he is South African, and he used to fight apartheid as a student, and he resisted torture, and now he's an activist for fighting for better working conditions for all the uh, the people all over the world in the supply chains where we have bad working conditions. He used to work for the ILO and he was the, the um, leader of the Fair Labor Association that took mostly care of the textile industry in the beginning and has now expanded to all kinds of other areas. So Howard is he is really a hero. He's a great guy and he tells great stories. He can explain everything to you, why it's so difficult to get a grip on, on all these problems we have in the supply chains and how you can run an audit. And, and he has a massive amount of experience and he's such a warm-hearted person. But if you talk to him, you feel like you are the most important and most interesting mm. person in the room, which of course you are not, but he is. But this is, uh, I, I, I haven't even asked him yet how he does it and where it comes from. I guess it's probably quite natural for him. And it's also, if you do lots of in, interviews with workers in, all over the world, you probably have to create this kind of inclusive aura, tell me everything, you are very important to me thing. And, and uh, so that's very inspiring to me. And I'm, yeah, I, I, I want to be like him when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's fantastic. And I would recommend his TED talk um, where, you know, a, a lot of what you shared, the stories and so on, but for sure, you'd have to be a really good listener, not only for the the victims in this, in, in the supply chains, but um, to enlist the corporations that he has definitely um, yes i think that's one very very important point he the, the he's such an integrative person that he gets everybody on board that's probably a key skill that you need in this field yeah 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 and and something that he speaks to is this you know giving people their dignity back and and i think just even naming what's going on in situations like that to, to the point, you know, to, to the work that you do as well, you know, when you can actually articulate a name or describe what's actually going on and, and call it what it is. Uh, I think that's incredibly clarifying for people to just see it's, it, you kind of can't argue with it, but there's also a relief with the fact that, oh, it is a thing. 
<laughs> and therefore it needs dealing with. Yeah, right. I like that because very often it's uh, it's hard for, I imagine it's hard for people to to name it and admit that it does disturb them because we sometimes have this kind of, oh, you have to be tough in business kind of thinking. Um, and it's also, I guess, why sometimes people in business are scared by the term ethics because we, we think, oh, you have to be perfectly moral in everything you do and pristine like an angel, which is really not the case you have because that's not how ethics works. It's it, it's more a question that you think hard about your options and get all the information that you can have and see what are the different stakeholders, what will happen to them in the long run, the short term. And then you have to, it, it's all about decision making, like all over in business, only that it's, it has this additional dimension on, on responsibility and uh, you, you need just to be able to come to an informed decision and know how you want to deal with or if you can maybe mitigate some of the collateral damages or not, and how you want to deal with it and be prepared. Hmm. For sure. So I imagine um, your dinner party conversations, when you can resume them, <laughs> uh, but when you've had them, are really fascinating um, discussions. But I want to hear from you, what would be the best uh, or worst conversation you've ever had? Well, for the worst conversation, I'm obviously not uh, naming anybody, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, 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 it seems to be with, with all this social media and you need to communicate so much about yourself and self-promotion that I have the impression that sometimes I'm, it, it is hard for people to just ask. I mean, I enjoy getting to meet new people and get to know what they are doing, but after all, and so I'm, I'm doing the kickoff for a conversation most with, with pleasure because I think I, I'm good at this, but then after a while, I would like to have the simple question, and how about you? And, and that often doesn't happen anymore. So that, that will be, so after, if that, if a conversation like this takes too long, I get kind of frustrated. So that will be like a bad conversation, especially if, if there would be something where, hmm, I, I would, I could tell that person something that would be interesting for them, but they, they, they just wouldn't get it. So that's, that's kind of my uh, sketch of um, my worst conversations. <laughs> well, and fair enough, right? If you feel like the other person truly is showing no interest or curiosity about you, we're not going to open up and share something of importance to us, right? <laughs> we, exactly. There's no trust that it will be, that it'll land in the way that we want it to be treated. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it's also a little bit of uh, a personality type if you still feel the urge to kind of jump in and still try to bring something across to the person or if you just shut up and uh, sit it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but it, yeah, it's just dynamic. If you're stuck on the, on the bottom of the seesaw, you just 
stay there. Right. Right. <laughs> Desperate to get up. So what's right. um what's the best conversation that you've ever had? Yes, as the best conversations I keep having, of course, with my husband, but uh, our very first conversation was quite memorable. We met on a conference, obviously on business ethics, because we both are in the same field, only that he became a professor and I wanted to do more practical stuff. And back then, I actually went to the conference to hunt for a job, but there were little companies at the time, but many, many fun young people. So um, we there was the last session of the conference and the talk was really boring. And I sat next to Guido. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, I have to, it, it has always been my dream to marry a half Italian. So I, I, I had seen from his name Palazzo that he, he was half Italian. <laughs> and so, I, so I, I said in jest, totally in jest. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I told him that I would take his name if we would marry, and he said, "Well, you would have to." And then we started to to have this kind of checking each other out and negotiation discussion of what would happen if we would marry. So he wanted to know if I came from an intact family, if I was Catholic because of his Italian grandmother. And uh, he, I wanted to find out what his kind of um, professional future might look like. And it looked all very well. <laughs> I think he, yeah, he even told me that he was like always 10% in grades of all his studies. <laughs> a, basically a kind of a marriage sales conversation. But it was also fun. Because, yeah, then we negotiated. He said that, oh, no, we, we, we shouldn't live in Bavaria. And I said, okay, but we live in Munich. And then he said, okay. So I always won, which I liked, because I, I didn't, I uh, wanted uh, a guy that I can influence, not some macho person, even though. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. What a brilliant conversation. <laughs> no. You know, leave nothing to doubt. Uh, let's let's nail this here and there. Uh, right, here and it there. was really straight to the point. <laughs> and, and I was more like playing around, but but he was already serious. He keeps claiming, and yeah. And uh, a month later, we were together and already planning our wedding. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Nobody it, believed us, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but if you can have that kind of clarity and 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 is so long, assuming you both knew your minds really well at this point, um, and and what you wanted, and have that negotiation, then why not? It was fun. <laughs> and so um, so. Italian because of the time you spent in Rome or, or, or just you like Italians? Yes, I'm, I, I owe my very existence to Italian learning because my dad went to my grandfather from my, my mother's dad to get Italian classes because my, my grandfather was from the north of Italy and he had. Uh, he went to Germany after the Hitler-Mussolini Pact, where the people from uh, South Tyrol could choose to to become German. Right. So, yeah. So, since from my very childhood, I had a very 
strong relationship with Italy. Like, like I mean, I'm not nothing special. They are most Germans are crazy about Italy. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think it's a great combination. Yeah. I think it's I think it's lovely. I've I've got friends who are Swiss and and Italian, and there, there's definitely it's an interesting cultural um, cultural mix, and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, uh, a lot of body language as well, right? Um, in terms of you know uh, how we speak, it kind of it's it amplifies um, what's being said. Yeah, that's very strong in Italy. Of course, they have a whole kind of. Um, secret sign language more or less and it it takes a while to to figure that out uh, but we don't have pictures here so i can really show all the variety that you have there if you if you turn your finger in the one sense or in the other sense make something different well i'm not an expert in this yet but uh it's it's uh yeah that there's even the story about um, if, if Italians have their hands tied, they can't really talk to you. So if somebody's carrying two bags and you ask them something, they have to put the bags down first because before <laughs> they can <laughs> respond to you. I love that. I love that. Do you think um, Do you think that body language adds or, 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 you know, for someone who maybe doesn't use, you know, doesn't gesture, um, quite as much. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think gestures from other cultures are distracting for them, or or they actually add uh, and embellish, give a sort of deeper experience of the conversation? Hmm. Well, gestures. I guess there are important. Let me think. <laughs> well, if if people are just uh, too stiff, that's not that that can come across as as kind of um, reserved, right? But um, then again, it, it depends very much how they speak and then you, you can even give a very passionate speech without gestures. So I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of in between. It really depends very much um, how at ease you are with the gestures. And it, 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 I guess it needs to be authentic, like with everything in communication. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And um, something that um, you mentioned in a previous conversation is uh, made me chuckle was um, this sort of conversation starting is a is a dirty business, as in not everyone wants to do it um, or is uncomfortable with it. So someone has to start the conversation. Uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I realized, well, um that there are certain prompts and conversation starters that can be very helpful. Of course, you can always talk about the weather or about the food or about the, the kind of standard things we grew up with. But I, I recently, there's even an app for this. It's called Seldomly Asked Questions. And it is quite fun because it adds a new level of of meaning, how you talk and check people out. And it's very much fun. And uh, one of my favorite questions there in this realm is, what is your passion? And it really opens up doors a lot uh, because, well, it, it's still a, a respectful distance to people. So people don't get, um, don't feel overly pushed to 
to tell all their, their secrets to you, but it's also something very personal. So for instance, when I asked one of my guest speakers at the university, a very serious guy, and he talked about corporate governance. And so I asked him, so what are your passions? And he said, oh, I'm a labyrinthologue. So he said it in French, I don't know. Even now, how you how you would pronounce it in English? So he he his hobby was labyrinths, so mazes, and and he wow. showed me a whole presentation with all kinds of mazes, and I had no idea before that something like this exists and that people are passionate about this topic. So that's uh, something I find mm, that's um, the. The benefit of conversations and being open and listening well to people because you might just be surprised what you find. Yeah, I love I love that because I think I, I think so many people have um, difficulty with um, what we call in the UK small talk. Um, you know, when you get to meet someone for the first time and and you're sort of standing around and trying to find a way to connect. And you can ask there, so what job do you do? Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, but it's far more interesting um, to to ask something. And and that's it. I, I like your your thought there, which is you only need two or three sort of questions like, you know, what is your, pa- you know, do you have a passion? Um, that mean that it can open up quite a, an extraordinary and rich and surprising conversation that you wouldn't right. have had and um, gives you an opportunity to listen. Yeah. Yeah, or other stuff like what was the best thing that happened to you last year? Well, last year was a little bit difficult for most of us, right? <laughs> so maybe the worst thing, but then you're on, on the more negative track that you don't really want to go there in, a, in the first thing. <laughs> or, or, yeah. But the position stands, right? You only need a, a, a few. And, and, and I think a lot of that sort of difficulty with small talk is not actually knowing what to ask. Um, you know, not, to not having uh, two or three questions and um, and a, a sort of an awkwardness about even needing maybe to have two or three questions that you pull out in social settings. But it's a great way, I think, to deflect attention, especially if you're not feeling comfortable, but you want to connect with people to actually have something that you can ask um, that gets other people talking. Yes, yes, it works and it really can change your perspective of a person. I did this with my students a lot to make, to get them into the, into interactive mood so they would participate more in class. So I started, had a warm up question for them, like, what's your dream job? Or where would you want to live if you had free choice? And it really changed the way I saw my students because they suddenly shared stuff I would not have thought of them. So mm. that, for instance, one student said that she used to be in the national team for fencing in Ukraine or whatever. I would never no. have known this about them without these questions. Well, and I think people people do have fascinating, fascinating lives and stories to tell, as you've shared with us today. Bettina, this has been a brilliant um, conversation. As ever, I, I love our conversations. In wrapping up, what would you like to leave our listeners with? What advice or counsel? 
Yes, we already had our the conversation starters, and the other thing would be just switch on your curiosity if you listen to people. So curiosity is one of my favorite virtues or qualities because it it helps you with with everything. With you can be more creative if you are curious and you can be more open with people and just switch to this also if people tell you something that you that uh, puts you maybe in a bad mood just switch to curiosity and think so why am i reacting this way and it also helps to take the pressure away yeah so i think yeah curiosity doesn't kill the cat curiosity is the key for great conversations Mm -hmm. i love it love it thank you so much thank you Bettina um, for for joining me today it's been wonderful thank you I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me Siham Cyrene and if you did leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives you can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So, what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Cyrene, and this has been a better conversation.